You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Welcome to Faith Roots. I'm doing a series called The End from the Beginning. This is a little different than what I normally do. It's a little longer. And I'm going to encourage you to really do the study with this. And uh, look up the scriptures, read them for yourself, make sure you mark them. So if you're listening by audio, you're going to miss some things because there will be some visuals put up on the screen. Uh, So I would encourage you uh, to go back and take part of this uh, visually so you can write things down and uh, really digest everything that I'm going to say because there's a lot of material here. And it could be very overwhelming if you're trying to deal with it casually. So uh, I want to forewarn you about that. And it's going to be lengthy in terms of uh, uh, months. We probably will go three months with this. So there's a lot of material here to cover. All right, let's get right into our text. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. This is from the New English Bible which says, Remember all that happened long ago. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. And when God says this, He's not merely talking about His power. He's talking about His omniscience, meaning that He has all knowledge from the beginning to the end. And He says, there's no one like me. Not even Satan is like that. Even in a negative sense, Satan cannot predict the future. He uh, tells things that have happened in the past. That's how he deceives people through mediums. But Satan cannot predict the future, not like Almighty God. And that's why God says, there's no one like me. I reveal the end from the beginning. From ancient times I reveal what is to be. I say my purpose shall take effect, meaning that there will be times when men will be against the purposes of God. But God said it doesn't matter. My purpose will take effect. I'll work even through and around ungodly people. And then he says, I will accomplish all that I please. If everybody's cooperating, that's not a problem. But God can get it done when people are not cooperating. Now, the God of the Hebrews foretold future events from the very beginning two ways, using direct statements and using symbolic illustrations. And the very first prophecy of the Bible, after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3.15, God gave a prophecy. didn't use prophet because there was no prophet to use. Now, later, he would speak to prophets and through prophets. But in this instance, he's speaking directly to the serpent, which is Satan. And this is what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, the first sentence there, I will put enmity between you and the woman. uh, That's a direct statement. God is saying there will be an ongoing conflict between you and women. You'll hate women. And women have suffered greatly since the fall. Um, and we'll look further at this in the days to come, or in the uh, uh, lesson to come. Uh, between your seed and her seed, now we're getting symbolic there, uh, because a woman doesn't have a seed. So what does this mean? He shall bruise your head again. Symbolic language. You shall bruise his heel. Now, since the woman has no seed, this promise implies then that the deliverer who will be born 
will come through a virgin birth. And that's what it is saying. Uh, God predicted that the seed would be bruised in the process, but only on the heel. And he would not experience the fatal head-crushing blow like the serpent would receive. And so this is the first prophecy. So we see God doing two things here. Number one, he makes a great statement. And then number two, he gives symbolic statements. The two of these things have been blended together in prophecy from the very beginning. And so it's important to learn how to determine the prophetic scriptures by looking for the direct statement and the symbolic illustration. Now, we can see how Satan responded to this because ever after, he lived in dread fear of the seed. Anyone who showed some kind of promise or bend toward God, uh, Satan went after. Of course, the first person that he went after was Abel. And Abel was a worshiper of God, and he brought sacrifices to God. His sacrifice was received by God, most likely by fire. There was something God did to show that he approved of Abel's sacrifice, and it uh, very likely is the thing that he did many times in Scripture, at least four times. Uh, he sent fire down to consume the sacrifice. There was something that could be seen. And uh, Cain was extremely jealous of this, and ultimately he slew his brother. Uh, in the Wiest translation of the New Testament, speaking about what Cain did, uh, it says that he slit his throat, which is uh, the word that's used there is the a word used for killing a sacrifice, and that was how they were killed. They were killed with a slit throat. He may have hit him on the head, but he slit his throat. Uh, the murder of Abel, so he was... Uh, the Possibly the seed, Satan didn't know, so he killed him. Uh, and then we come into the time of Abraham, and God favored Abraham. His wife Sarah, or Sarai, could not have babies. Could this barrenness have been an attempt of Satan to keep the seed from coming? And then we come later. Uh, where Sarai is taken by Pharaoh into his harem. Now, he never consummated their marriage, uh, but he took her. It was a threat against the seed. Same thing happened again when uh, Sarai was taken by the Philistine king, uh, Abimelech. And uh, so twice this was a, a threat to the seed. Uh, Abraham's granddaughter by marriage, Rebekah, uh, or I'm sorry, daughter-in-law by marriage, Rebekah, had a troubling pregnancy. Uh, because of strife between Jacob and Esau. Uh, and as they went through their lives, Esau swore that he would kill Jacob. Again, this is a threat against the seed because uh, Jacob was not the seed, but he is of the line that will bring the seed. Uh, then we see Joseph, who looked like he might be the promised seed because of the hand of God that was on him because of the favor that was on him. Satan persecuted him. He was taken to Egypt. Uh, we see in Egypt later the slaughter of the baby boys. Uh, this is what threatened Moses. Again, this uh, is uh, uh, Satan's attempt to stop the seed from being born. Uh, then later in the line of the kings, when David's line is ruling in Judah, uh, the wicked king, uh, uh, Queen Athaliah, kills all of the seed royal after her son dies. And uh, she was the daughter of Jezebel. She was a wicked, wicked lady. And uh, they didn't know it. She didn't know it. But one little boy survived. The seed was hanging by a thread. But he was taken by a relative and hidden from her so she couldn't kill him. 
Uh, then when Nebuchadnezzar, the king, came from Babylon to conquer Judah, he took many of the royal family into captivity and he made eunuchs of them, which again destroyed the possibility of seed coming through them. There was a great threat there to the seed of Messiah being born, but God always had his hand on just the right person to make sure that there was a line through which the promised Savior could come. So we see the war on the seed, and then ultimately it came uh, against Jesus when uh, King Herod found out that Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. He had all the baby boys in and around Bethlehem killed. Uh, one of the scriptures that talks about this says that uh, the women of Ramah, R-A-M-A-H, uh, they wept. That was a city north of Jerusalem. So Herod didn't just kill the babies in Bethlehem. He did a wide circle all around Jerusalem, and there had to be hundreds of young babies that were, were taken, baby boys. Uh, Satan has always oppressed women. One of the things that's worth note in a study of history is this. Women have, as a class, enjoyed their highest honor in nations where the Bible has influenced the culture. And a lot of people don't want to admit that, but it is the truth. There has never been uh, an exaltation of women like there has been in cultures that were influenced by the Bible. Uh, the book of Genesis, then, is given by God to foretell the things of the end. Now, I want to go back and read that scripture again. That's Isaiah 46.10. God says, remember the old things. Remember the things from ancient times. He said, I reveal the end from the beginning. Now, he's not just saying, I tell the future from the earliest times of history. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, I am using the earliest happenings to predict the latter happenings, which means that God was guiding somehow all of these different things that were going on in the lives of people, even when they may not have wanted to cooperate with it. God said, I am revealing the end from the beginning. Uh, an interesting thing here. This, this shows about a 1,700-year period, almost 1,700 years, uh, where God was at work. And God was at work in what these people named their sons. And in Hebrew, their names are highly significant. Their names meant something, very much like North American Indian tribes named their children after things that they saw, visions they had, events that may have happened around the child's birth or certain characteristics. Uh, you know, in, in, in our culture, we don't think as much about how we name a child with meaning in his name. Some people do, but, but it was especially true of the ancients. And here is Adam, then his son Seth, then Enos, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Now, as we read those 10 names, they mean nothing to you as you read them in English. But when you get the Hebrew meaning, you know this. The name Adam literally means man. In fact, often in Hebrew, there is a definite article in the Hebrew when it talks about Adam, and it says the Adam, and that refers to the first man. So there was the Adam. Now, every man was an Adam, but there was the Adam. So Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enos means mortal. Canaan means sorrow. 
Mahalalil, blessed God, had a son named Jared, which means descending or shall come down. And let me say this, these names can be really transliterated. A lot of times when people think we translate something, we think it has to be exact. It, 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 it is transliterated. In other words, we get the gist of the meaning, and you could say it in a number of ways. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death brings. Lamech means despairing, and Noah means rest or comfort. And so let me give you the meaning of these names in order and see if it doesn't tell a story. Man appointed mortal sorrow. Blessed God shall come down teaching. His death brings despairing rest. Now that's the gospel. That in the first 10 generations up to the time of the flood, this is an example, a great example, classic example of how God works behind the scenes to influence people. These people, some of them were godly. Uh, Lamech was not a godly man. Uh, 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 several of these people were far from God. Enos, more than likely, was far from God. These people did not realize what they were doing, but they were prompted by God, influenced by God, to name their sons by a particular name which would tell this story. So this is providence. It's God's hidden movings in people, in the affairs of men, guidance in the affairs of men. When we come back, I want to show you two of the greatest pictures of the Messiah, the shadows of Christ in all of the scriptures. These two are probably the greatest. And as we read them, and they're both in the book of Genesis, we see that that which was from the beginning is that which will be at the end. And by the way, these two have mostly been fulfilled, not fully, but mostly been fulfilled. So we can see uh, whether or not this principle of declaring the end from the beginning has any justification. Because if we can see that it happened before and that the interpretation came true, and we can see that what God said symbolically happened literally later, then we can make a case that the same thing will happen at the end of the age. So we'll be back in a minute and we'll dig right into the trial of Abraham. Welcome back. We're in lesson two of the end from the beginning. This is the second part. We're talking about perhaps the greatest picture of Messiah in all of the Bible. Um, it's just an amazing prophecy. Uh, so many different biblical characters were types and shadows of the Messiah because it was all about him. Everything was about him. You know, um, the four living creatures that... Uh, had the faces and the wings, and they had four different faces. There was the face of uh, a lion, then the face of an ox, the face of a man, the face of an eagle. We look at that symbolism, we think, what in the world does this mean? Well, if you understand biblical symbolism, and you get that understanding just by reading through the Scripture, the eagle is a picture of resurrection, and uh, the man is a picture of humanity. Uh, the ox is the king of the beasts of burden. So uh, he's the chief of the beasts of burden. He's made for sacrifice. He's a servant. 
and then the lion is the symbol of royalty uh, or a king. And so what you have here is the Messiah is a king, the Messiah is a servant, the Messiah is a man, and the Messiah is resurrected. And that's what you see in the four Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew, the theme is the king. And that's why Jesus starts talking in the first sermon. Sermon on the Mount, he's preaching all about the kingdom of God. The kingly uh, line of David is revealed in the very first chapter of Matthew. This is Joseph's genealogy. And basically what it shows is that Jesus had a legal right to become king of Israel. A lot of people think that he was king only in a figurative sense, but that's not true. He was the legit king of the line of David to inherit the throne. Now, there was a wicked king who was of David's line during the time of uh, Jeremiah named Jehoiakim. And it looks like Jehoiakim in uh, King James. Anyway, Jehoiakim uh, was cursed by the prophet Jeremiah who said to him, None of your seed will sit on the throne again forever. Now, this seemed to be a problem because David had been given a prophecy that his heir would always sit on the throne, that he would always have an heir. There's a difference between seed and an heir. Uh, we don't think about it as much today, but adoption was a huge thing in the ancient world. And so Jesus was born not of the biological line of David through Joseph. He was biologically connected to David through Mary, but he was connected to David through Joseph in a legal way. Joseph was the king because Jesus is the firstborn son of Joseph's wife, Mary. He then became Joseph's heir. And so he had a right to the inheritance there. Now, because of sin and the curse of Jeremiah, uh, this right couldn't pass on to Jesus if he's a biological son. But since he's not the biological son, but an heir, then he's entitled to be in the line of Joseph to receive whatever Joseph would have had. Well, Joseph would have been the king, uh, but he couldn't because of that curse. But Jesus wasn't under that curse. And so God did this cute little arrangement that was very detailed, very intricate, and seemed impossible. But he lets things hang by thread sometimes and makes them look really hard, and then he comes in as only he can do and fulfills it. And by the way, uh, Jesus was born at a time when the most powerful man in the world was an adopted son. Augustus Caesar was not the biological son of Julius Caesar. He was an adopted son, and the Romans valued adoption. And uh, it was something that happened all over the ancient world. It was a huge deal. And so Jesus was entitled to Joseph's lineage, uh, so he was the king. He also was a servant. And that's what we see in the Gospel of Mark. Now, there's no genealogy in Mark. It doesn't need to be. A servant's genealogy does not matter. What we see is that he's not even called Lord, but two times after the resurrection. So uh, it isn't that he's not Lord, it's just the emphasis is about his servanthood. 
That's what you see in the Gospel of Mark. Then we come into the Gospel of Luke, and we see his humanity. That's why there's the face of the man in the third beast in the book of Revelation. Jesus was a man. You know that 88 times he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, when I first read that as a new Christian, I thought, why isn't he saying he's the Son of God? Because he is laying claim to all of the things that God had promised Adam that Adam lost lost and could not receive because he had sinned. But now Jesus is the perfect man, the second Adam or the last Adam. And so he has a right to take up whatever authority Adam had. And so he refers to himself as the son of man. When he says in John 10, all who came before me were thieves and robbers, he wasn't talking about the prophets. He was talking about all the beings who came into this world before me they were outlaws. They're thieves and robbers. I came through the door. What is the door? Physical birth. Jesus took on a physical body. He became a man. Fascinating thing. And, and we'll get into this in the story of Abraham. But Jesus was carrying two family lines when he died on the cross. And we'll get into that just in a minute. Now, the, the last gospel, the gospel of, of John, is Jesus being presented as the Word, the resurrected Son of God. Totally different than the other gospels. You've got a genealogy in Luke because it needs to tie Jesus biologically back to David. You've got a genealogy in Matthew because it needs to tie Jesus back to the kingly line of David legally. And then you've got the servant in Mark, but now in, in John, you've got the resurrected Son of God. That's why he's pictured as an eagle. So you see the theme of the four Gospels. It's all about Messiah. That's what the symbols always point to. It's what the Gospels are all about. Everything's about Jesus. He has preeminence in all things. Now, the trial then of Abraham is a shadow of the coming Messiah. Now, God chose to make a certain type of covenant with Abraham that had never been made before. He made a covenant with Noah, but not the same kind of covenant. The covenant that he made with Abraham was a blood covenant. Now, blood covenants were common in those days. Uh, there were no guarantees, no bill of rights, no constitution. You moved into an area, it was might makes right. And so it was only natural for two tribes to come together to make agreements with each other for self-preservation. One tribe might be a tribe of warriors, but they weren't very good at producing food. So the lesser tribe would come in and we'll farm, we'll produce food for you, you protect us. And so they would enter into a blood covenant. Now in a blood covenant, these two parties would kill animals, lay their carcasses out in a path and walk down through the middle of the path and they would make promises and solemn oaths to each other and that blood covenant could not be broken. And so that's the kind of covenant God made with Abraham. Now I want you to see how strong a bond this covenant was. The Gibeonites came in the book of Joshua to Joshua feigning that they were from far, far away. They got the oldest clothes they had. They were torn and tattered. They made it look like they had been traveling for months. They got old molded bread, even though they were very near 
to where the children of Israel lived, they knew that God had said to Joshua, you can't make covenants with these neighboring tribes. And so the Gibeonites thought, if we go in and let them know we're from here, they'll never make a covenant with us. But they came in feigning that they were from far off. Joshua believed them. He made covenant with them. Now, not long after that, the Gibeonites were attacked by more of the Canaanite neighbors. And the Lord put it into the heart of Joshua, you have to defend these guys. This covenant can't be broken. So even though the Gibeonites made this covenant deceptively, God had Israel honor it and God himself stepped in. And this is where the day was extended so that Joshua could mop up all of the enemies. And uh, he, he did what he needed to do uh, to defend Gibeon. So that was a lifelong covenant. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12. Why did God create a covenant on the basis of blood? Well, I want to show you why right here. I'm going to read from uh, the New International Version, 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out what the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So every one of these prophets, David, Isaiah, all of the prophets of the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them, Hosea, every one of them, Zechariah would be another one. They prophesied about Messiah. They prophesied that he would suffer. They wanted to know more about this. They tried to find out when this might happen. It was all a mystery. Now, it was revealed to them, 1 Peter 1.12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. So when they started searching, the Holy Spirit told them and showed them, you're not doing this for yourself. You are prophesying for a generation and generations that will come after you. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So this was a mystery. Now listen to the last statement because it's critically important. Even angels long to look into these things. In other words, Peter says, angels do not fully understand the blood covenant. The blood covenant was a mystery to them. It is something that is difficult for them to grasp. They want to look into it, but let me tell you why. They don't have blood. God wanted to set up an agreement with men that demons and fallen angels and Satan himself could have no part of. They are excluded. They're on the outside looking in because they have no blood. And that's the reason uh, why God based things on the blood covenant. Listen to 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, verse 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh 
is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now already is in the world. So the devil won't even admit that Jesus came in a physical body. And this is what separates Christianity from the cults. There are cults that profess a belief in Jesus, but they do not believe that he suffered bodily, that he was crucified bodily, that he died bodily, and that he was raised from the dead bodily. That's the separation right there. And so the devil can't admit that because it is an admission of his defeat. He will not recognize that. He's, he's def he, it, it's very similar to what you see people who are hopelessly wicked. When hopelessly wicked people get caught in evil, their defense is to deny that anything happened. And even when confronted with evidence, they will not admit it. You see that all the time. And so the evidence of the redemption of man is the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, God, because of man's great need, put a demand on Abraham that seemed to be very harsh. God did not need this. Abraham needed this. Mankind needed this. So let's listen to Genesis 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And it doesn't mean he tempted him to commit a sin. That, that, that's not the word here. It was a test or a proving that God tested him, and he said, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. Now, Abraham had been in this area before. Uh, this uh, mountain, Moriah, is at the top of the place where Melchizedek lived. It's the hill just above him. He was in Salem or Jerusalem, and just above him on the highest peak is Mount Moriah, and that's where Abraham was told to go. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So they headed out right away. Now, Abraham, by this time in his walk with God, had developed a quality of faith that permitted him to obey. i got to say something to you. There are things that you will be able to do later on in your life as you walk with the Lord where you will be able to obey God perfectly, where you might not be able to do it right now because you're not fully ready because there are some things you don't know. Uh, God spoke to me and my wife one time to give up all of the money that we had coming from the sale of our home. And uh, it was at a time when we needed that money. We had no other way to get it, or so we thought, but we obeyed. We both made a pledge, we prayed, we decided to give up that money, and it meant that we would not have money to buy a home. Uh, but we did it anyway. And so uh, God showed me something in the whole process. He said, I am going to bless you with a better home than you can possibly imagine. You will not lose on this. And 45 days later, sure enough, we got a better home, and it was remarkable. But we didn't just get that home. We continued to be blessed in our homes because of that situation that we faced and the commitment we made. But we could not have made it 
had we not known the character of God. Now listen to Hebrews 11, verse 17, 18, 19. Pay attention to this, because a lot of people preach on the sacrifice of Abraham, thinking that Abraham gave up Isaac and thought, well, that's it, I, I lose him, but if I lose him, I lose him. That's not what he thought. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises. Now that's huge right there. What promises had he received? He received promises that his family would become a mighty nation and that all of these people would be born through Isaac. Isaac would be a father as well. So Isaac had not yet married, did not yet have children. So Abraham knows Isaac cannot die. If I do offer him, God will raise him from the dead. And that's exactly what it says. He who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence he also received him in a figurative sense. And so in a way, Isaac was resurrected. Let me tell you why. Because the very moment that Abraham heard that order from God, Isaac was dead. He didn't tell Isaac what he was going to do right away, but Isaac was dead in the mind of Abraham. He'd already made the decision. It was a done deal. The three days of traveling was, was just something they had to do to get to the place. But Isaac was gone. He was given. But on the third day, God released Isaac. His death would not have done anything for mankind because he was a sinner. And all of sin comes short of the glory of God. Isaac could not have redeemed anybody. God didn't need anything to prove by the death of Isaac. What he needed from Abraham was willingness to give a son. Here's why. God based all of his dealings with mankind on this blood covenant. So in a blood covenant, you had to have two parties who would be willing to make the same commitment to each other. So when Abraham made a commitment to God, I will give you my son, it opens the door for God in justice to give his son. And here's what's fascinating. Earlier I told you there were two families, two lines, two seeds in, in Jesus when he was offered. In the book of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says that Jesus was the son of Abraham. A lot of times we think only of Jesus going to the cross as the son of God. I want to tell you, he was also the son of Abraham. So the, the two covenant partners came together in Jesus Christ, and he went to Moriah and was offered there as a sacrifice for Abraham and a sacrifice for God, and it redeemed humanity. Boy, is that powerful. Abraham fully expected that he would be back. Uh, he told his uh, two helpers, I am the lad, we'll go yonder and worship, we will come back to you. And uh, he had been given re revelation of this, this act, and, and here we see it. It's um, Genesis twenty-two fourteen. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. Now, I believe this is where he saw the future. 
I don't think he saw the future two weeks before or a couple of years before. I think he saw the future here, and there's a pattern here, and here's why. Obedience produces revelation. Every time you take a step to obey God, you'll get a revelation from God of some kind or another. Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What's that mean? The sacrifice will be provided in this mountain. That's what it's saying. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham the second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you you have done this thing. God didn't say you intended to do this thing. God said, I saw it. You did it. I stopped you, but in your heart, you did it. It was a done deal with you. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son Isaac. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. That's why Jesus could say later in Matthew 16, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And everyone who comes into faith in Jesus Christ is a son or daughter of Abraham. Verse 18, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This act brought about salvation in the world. Abraham didn't save the world, but he completed the covenant. He made the covenant real. Listen to me. God can do anything, but he can't act unjustly. God can't just come into humanity and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. If there is a blood covenant, then God has to observe the way that a blood covenant works. Both parties have to do their part. Abraham was willing to do his part. He didn't have to. God stopped him, but he certainly had the willingness, and that's why God tested him. And Satan could never come back and accuse and point and say, uh, you died for man, you sent your son to die for man, but man doesn't care about you. God can always point back to Abraham and say, no, there was a man who gave me his son. So that's why this blood covenant is so very important. Now, listen to this one. This is John 8, 56, and it's what Jesus said to the enemies of the Jew, uh, that were in the Jewish population. Not all the Jews were enemies of his, but, but some were. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Uh, when did he see it? He saw it on Mount Moriah when he had just offered Isaac. That's when he saw the plan. Wow. Types, shadows, symbols, they all predict the future. And we've seen one of the most remarkable examples of that here in the story of Abraham and Isaac. But we're not done. In our next section, I'll come back and I'll tell you the amazing story of Joseph. We're talking about the types and shadows in the book of Genesis that portend future events. It's a device that God uses throughout Scripture where symbolic things happened uh, in order to show us how the future will unfold and the, the later they'll be fulfilled literally. Joseph, the son of Jacob, the great-grandson of Abraham, is one of the most amazing shadows, pictures, symbols of Jesus the Messiah in all the Bible. 
um, like Christ. Joseph enjoyed great favor. He didn't have favor with everybody. Jesus didn't either. Uh, but Joseph had favor with his father. That's why the dad gave him a coat of many colors. God favored Joseph. You see that all through his narrative. And, uh, but like Jesus Christ, Joseph was envied to the point of murder by ten of his brothers. They almost murdered him. And uh, Judas spoke up and said, no, what profit is it if we slay our brother? Uh, let's make some money off of him. So they sold him as a slave. Um, there are at least 17 different parallels between Joseph and Christ that are worth looking at. And so I want to go ahead and get right into that. That's amazing that you would have someone who would have this many amazing similarities to Jesus Christ. And this is not an accident. This is God working. First of all, Joseph had a unique coat. You learn this about Joseph in Sunday school. If you went to Sunday school, uh, you get to use every Crayola in the box when you color his coat. He had a unique coat which marked him as a priest king for the family. That uh, is the unspoken thing about this coat. This coat was not just given because Dad wanted him to be warm in the winter. No, God gave him the coat as a sign of his prominence and his role in the family. They, he had a sense. Jo uh, Jacob was a prophet. He was able to foretell the future to a certain extent. Joseph had two coats. He had one in Egypt, and he had the coat of many colors, both of them were taken from him in his sufferings. It's interesting that when Christ began to suffer, that his robe was taken from him, first as they beat him, secondly they took it again when they crucified him and gambled for his robe. So his robe was taken twice. Uh, rather than murder uh, Joseph outright, Judah schemed to sell his brother for silver, just as Judas, and that's the Greek form of the name Judah, so two Judas said, let's sell him and make some money. Joseph's coat profited the brothers just as Christ's coat profited the, uh, the Roman soldiers who gambled for it. In other words, when uh, the ten brothers took the coat back, actually nine of them, because Reuben was not aware of exactly what they had done. He didn't know. He thought maybe they had killed Joseph, but the coat was taken back, and it had blood on it, the blood of an animal, and they convinced Jacob that Joseph had been killed by some kind of a wild beast. So uh, that's what the brothers did. And uh, they profited. They used the coat to get themselves off the hook. And you see the Roman soldiers gambling for the robe of Jesus. They too profited from his coat. Uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, who was a prophet himself, we see him at the end of his life prophesying things of the future, remarkably had no insight in the suffering of his son. Now, uh, what we see is that God spoke to him on a number of occasions with visions and dreams and angels appeared to him. But when Joseph was taken, God didn't say a word. And he hid this from Jacob. It's because there was a purpose to the suffering of Joseph. And this is what we see, this remarkable restraint that God shows when Jesus goes through his suffering, because the father loved the son, but he restrained himself from interfering when Jesus was on the cross, and he permitted him to go through this awful, terrible suffering so that he could be uh, our Savior. Um, Joseph, in his humiliation, 
became very wise, found great favor with men as well as God. Christ was in his humiliation even as he uh, became a man, a young man. He's still humiliated. Uh, He uh, humbled himself and became as a man, took upon him form of the servant. So even as a man, he's humbled. He greatly humbled in his passion, but just to become a human being, he's humbled. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with man and God, Luke 2.52, so, or God and man. Uh, Joseph was same thing. Joseph was falsely accused by the wife of his master just as Christ was falsely accused by God's wife, Israel. If you want to read this, you can see in the book of Hosea, God says to Israel that you're my wife and you've been unfaithful to me. Well, Israel, uh, the wife of God, accused Jesus falsely. The wife of Potiphar accused Joseph falsely. Joseph was given charge over prisoners, just as Christ was said to have been the benefactor of prisoners. Luke 4.18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Ephesians 4, after he... uh, uh, while he was in the while he was in Hades, he went down and led captivity captive. In other words, he led all of the righteous dead who were still trapped in the heart of the earth, not in torment, but in paradise. He led them up out of the heart of the earth. So he was a benefactor to prisoners, as Joseph was. Joseph accurately predicted a day of judgment and a day of restoration for two fellow prisoners. Now, Joseph uh, predicted that the butler of Pharaoh would be restored and that the baker of Pharaoh would be executed. Jesus dealt with two fellow prisoners, the thieves who were crucified beside him. One of them was saved. One of them was not. Uh, The 10th parallel, Joseph is the first person in all of Scripture who is said to have the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Pharaoh himself said, he's a man in whom is the Spirit of God. That's Genesis 41, 38. Uh, John, the Baptist, looked at Jesus and said he had the Spirit without measure. Uh, 11, Joseph was exalted and honored in Egypt before he was honored by his own family. So the world received Jesus and recognized him when his own family did not. Now, many in his family did early on. Uh, but the vast majority of believers came out of the Gentile world. Joseph had offspring who were sons of Abraham before anyone in his family, including his father, knew that he had these sons of Abraham. And that is uh, very uh, similar to what's happened. Uh, There are huge numbers of believers who have come into faith in Christ who are a part of the family of God through Abraham uh, you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise, according to Galatians chapter 3. Um, the, the, there are a lot of people who would dispute that in uh, the Jewish religion because they don't necessarily recognize that. Uh, Joseph had offspring of a- Abraham. We said that. Uh, 13, seven years of famine uh, brought about a period of testing for Joseph's family, just as there will be seven years of testing called the tribulation, whose primary purpose is to test Israel. It will bring Israel at the end 
to faith in Jesus. They will see him and they will call for him. And this is a testing time that uh, turns them. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7 calls this tribulation. Let me read it. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now the reason that Jacob's trouble is mentioned here is if you remember, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel and uh, his father-in-law deceived him. They couldn't marry off the younger daughter first, so he gave him Leah to wife. He wakes up the next morning after uh, spending the night with this woman whom he could not see and, and then realizes this is not the one I thought I was marrying. And uh, so he said, you deceived me. And uh, Laban says, fulfill her week. So they had a week of celebrations. Then he did another week of celebrations. And he worked 14 years for these two women. So the seven years each, this is the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, so that's the symbolism here. Um, <clears throat> when Joseph went down to Egypt and his brothers came to him for food, he put tests upon his brothers to bring them to repentance, just as Christ will test Israel. And the tests were not designed just to inflict suffering. That's not the purpose of them. Uh, it's about bringing a change of heart and a change of attitude. And that's exactly what happened to Egypt. Jesus will bring about a change in Israel. Uh, verse uh, The 15th parallel, Joseph's brother Benjamin was not ever a party to his betrayal and suffering. A lot of times we think of all the brothers as being in on this, but Benjamin wasn't. It's interesting that the only uh, leader among the apostles listed in the New Testament whose tribe is mentioned is Saul of Tarsus of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, so this is a picture of the believing remnant. And a lot of people don't realize this. There were, there were thousands of Jewish people who believed in Jesus, thousands. Uh, that's why they had to have his trial at night. Had they tried to do this in the daytime, the, the people who believed in him would never have let it happen. Uh, uh, 16th parallel, Judah was the first of Joseph's brothers to repent of his earlier sins against Joseph. So when they're going through this test, Judah gets up and says, I knew this was happening. This has come upon us because uh, of what we did to our brother. He was the first one to repent about the evil he had done. And for this reason, in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 7, uh, it says that the Lord shall save the tents of Judah first. Why? Judah was the first of the brothers to repent. And then finally, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers privately uh, by sending out the Egyptian servants before he saved them out of their troubles. He revealed himself privately. And you see that in the book of Zechariah chapter 12. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. The house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So uh, you'll see all of Israel left at the end of the tribulation. They will be mourning and calling upon the name of Jesus and they will be saved and they will help fight in this battle to defend Israel. Uh, Jesus, of course, will do most of the fighting, but they'll be a part of it too. So he appears to them without the enemies knowing. 
And uh, same thing happened with Joseph and his brothers. Now, the Messianic prophecies about a suffering Messiah caused many Jewish scholars to think of this Messiah as maybe a separate Messiah from the triumphant one because there are prophecies of the sufferer and there are prophecies of the the triumphant king. So the triumphant king is called Messiah, son of David, and the suffering Messiah was called Messiah, son of Joseph. It is no accident then that Christ's adoptive father was named Joseph. Uh, most of this shadow is yet to be fulfilled. And a lot of it has been fulfilled, but not all of it. Now, the story in Genesis 22 about Abraham, that's all come to pass. Most of that has happened. It's, it's, it's been fulfilled. But this is a prophecy that is yet to come. I believe that the story of Joseph is going to be central in affecting Jewish people in the days to come. It will help them to see, you know, maybe we missed it here with our brother. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9 says this, this is King James Version, the thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. So God says, I'm going to repeat myself. You know, uh, you, you need to understand this about God. God is the God of closing up circles. He doesn't leave a circle open-ended. He began the earth in paradise, and we're going to get into this later. I'm going to show you how it's going to go back to paradise. God began with Israel. He is not going to abandon Israel. God is big enough to have a program both for the church and for the nation of Israel. They are distinct They're separate. Don't let anybody fool you. Uh, There's a doctrine that has been popular for quite some time called replacement theology. Don't believe in it at all. Don't believe the Scripture supports that. Because God is the God of the full circle. He will finish what He started. And uh, the Apostle Paul said concerning unbelieving Jews, he said they're enemies of the gospel for your sakes, but he said, but they're beloved of the fathers. For the fathers, they're beloved. God said, I have a commitment to the ones who... And, And think of all the centuries of righteous Jewish people that God loved and made promises to. You think he's gonna dump on the descendants Uh, because some of them disobeyed. What about us? Uh, What about we Gentiles who turned from God ourselves? We had righteous grandparents, great-grandparents, people in our line that prayed for us, and yet God had mercy on us. Aren't you glad He didn't throw us away? God doesn't throw away people. God is in the business of redeeming people because He's a God of full circle. Well, that's all the time that we'll have for this lesson but boy, we're not done. There is so much in the scriptures where that God shows the end from the beginning. We will continue. I want to thank you for watching our podcast today. And if you really liked it, would you please give us a little thumbs up by clicking on that sign down below. And then I would encourage you to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any of our future podcasts because they're all going to be good. And if you would like to support us financially, either with a one-time gift or recurring gift, you can do that by clicking on the link below or going to myfaithroots.com. Thank you so much for watching this program.
We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today. Thank you.